So we've been going through Ephesians on Sunday mornings, and in Ephesians 1, 15 through 19, there is a prayer there that Paul prays for the Ephesian church. And anytime I see a prayer in scripture, it draws my attention because I know when I see that, that that is something to pray for, obviously. Uh, Sometimes we pray groping around, wondering if we're on the right track, if we're even after something God wants to give. But when it comes to a prayer that you see in the scriptures themselves, and as you see Paul praying this for the Ephesian church, and by extension, all Christians, we know that we're on the right track there. And uh, 1 John 5 says, if we ask anything according to his will, we know that he hears us. And if he hears us, we know that we have the requests we've asked of him. So uh, that's what draws me to the the scripture prayers. And this is one of them. Um, I won't be covering all the information in this prayer. It's a long uh, sentence. Paul has these incredibly long sentences. And starting in verse 15 is his second one there um, in Ephesians. So I'll pick up there and really be focusing on verses 17 and a little bit on 18. Uh, But starting in 15, for this reason, I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. So to go back to verse 17, that praying that God would give to us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I think two things are implied there, at least two. Uh, We always need more wisdom than we have, and we always need to be increasing in knowledge. So the Ephesian Christians, they're Christians, they've already been made partakers of wisdom and of knowledge, but Paul is praying that they have more. So we know in part, and it is good to know more. So no one has arrived. No one can ever say, I know enough. Um, I'm done. Um, I, I don't need, I know all there is to know. Uh, nobody can say that. And Paul himself, whose knowledge would have greatly exceeded ours, did not say that of himself. In Philippians 3, you might recall, he said, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So is our attitude, I need to know God more, or is our attitude, I'm good, the second thing that is implied is that the Holy Spirit is essential to our growth in wisdom and understanding. And that means that we need more of the spirit than we have. Uh, Notice the wording there. Paul doesn't pray that they be given wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. 
he prays that the Ephesians be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Now, the NAS translates it a spirit and lower cases it, but I think that is, the other translations are better in that regard um, because I think theologically, when you look throughout the New Testament, you see that it is impossible to separate the good things of the spirit from the spirit himself, that you, you don't get the gifts of God without the spirit of God. The, the, the gifts are not things that you get um, that can be divorced in any way from God himself. And so the only way to receive anything that is good, whether it be love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on, wisdom, revelation, the only way to receive those things is through the spirit. Uh, some seem to think that when you are born again, you receive all the Holy Spirit you'll ever receive at the point of conversion. And then from that point on, spiritual growth is essentially dependent on blood, sweat, tears, toil, self-discipline, and so on. But I don't think that's the way it works. Uh, Paul is here praying that the Ephesians, who already have the Holy Spirit, that they be given, that's the word he uses, given the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. Oh, every good thing that God has for us is that comes through his spirit such that if we lack in some area, it will be supplied to us through the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's no receiving good things apart from him. And later in Ephesians, uh, Paul says in the same epistle, be filled with the spirit. Why would he say that if we're always in a state of fullness? Um, in Galatians 3, Two through three, Paul rebuked the Galatians, uh, and he said, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? So they were holding an error there that thought, yes, we begin with the spirit, but then from then on, we perfect ourselves by the flesh. Um, but no, sanctification is just as much dependent on the Holy Spirit as justification is. Um, in Luke eleven thirteen, in that gospel, when Jesus is talking about seek and you'll find, ask and it will be given to you and so forth. He wraps that up by saying, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit? To those who ask him. And though I think there's an application there to unconverted people praying for the spirit of God, I, he's talking to disciples who are already the children of God. So what about the Bible? Um, isn't that also important for our growth in sanctification and in wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of him? And of course, yes, it is. Uh, we cannot obtain wisdom without it, and uh, we need to meditate on the scriptures and study them and seek to understand them. But the point here is, is that we need the spirit to give us wisdom and revelation as we read. So it's by his spirit through his word. Uh, within Christianity, some groups tend to emphasize the Holy Spirit at the expense of the word of God. And others tend to go the other direction and emphasize the word 
to the exclusion of the Holy Spirit, but it's not an either or proposition. It's both. And in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So that's what we need is the word and the spirit both by uh, through his spirit, by his word. Um, in this next verse, verse 18, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. So he's some metaphor here, like the heart has eyeballs, but it's, you know, of course, a, a vision. What does your heart see? What does it apprehend and understand? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know three things. The hope to which he has called us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And as Christians, we know all three of those things to some degree. We understand to some degree the hope to which we have been called, uh, the hope of eternal life, the hope of his inheritance, the hope of the resurrection and so forth. But the idea here is that we don't really know it. We know it in part, but we need to know it a lot more than we do. Uh, same with the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The same with respect to his power toward those who believe. So this is a kind of enlightenment that he's praying for, for Christians, that enlarges our view of God and gives us a greater admiration for him. It's not the kind of uh, enlightenment that makes us think more highly of ourselves and arrogant about what we know. A worldly people, when they achieve what they think is enlightenment, and, you know, around the, the 1700s, uh, and th there was the age of the Enlightenment, where there's this supposed all this increase of knowledge and, and understanding about how the world works and so forth. But when the world achieves what it thinks as Enlightenment, it, and it never is, it always is accompanied by pride being puffed up. And when you think about it, one of the biggest problems that we have today in the world uh, particularly across the Western world and in the political realm is this idea of enlightenment and the pride that goes with it. Um, the theory of evolution by Darwin was considered enlightenment, but of course it was really just profound nonsense. Uh, wokeness is a supposed enlightenment. That's the very, the name of it. Woke. I'm woke. I'm I've come out of my sleepiness to see all the ways that I have oppressed people and, and so forth. And, and um, that, that supposed enlightenment, uh, feminism, um, abortion, the normalization of homosexuality and gay marriage, climate change, transgenderism, open borders, critical race theory, globalism, all of these things are the rotten and toxic and arrogant ideas of a group of elitists who think they're enlightened and think they know better than everybody else who disagrees with them. And because they know better than you do, they feel justified in shoving all of it down your throat, whether you like it or not. Uh, they feel justified in canceling you in exiling you and destroying your business and your ability to make a living. On the other hand, when Christians are enlightened, 
it does not have that effect. When a Christian is enlightened by the Holy Spirit to know things that he didn't know before and to know things that other unbelievers don't know and that maybe other Christians don't know yet, um, it actually makes them more humble. And the reason for that is because it's a knowledge of God and his astonishing glory, which if it's a real knowledge of God, will make you amazed with God. It will result in profound admiration for him, not self. It makes the Christian, generally speaking, despise himself and lose all self-confidence. And you can see that in a number of places in the Bible. In, in Isaiah 6, Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filling the temple and smoke. And the result is, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. It humbled him, but he was enlightened. Uh, Peter, after he'd fished all night and caught nothing, he and the others, and Jesus tells him to go out into the deep water and cast his nets. You know, he re reluctantly obeys. And then he hauls in so many fish that the nets are breaking and he's enlightened, but he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Uh, when Peter, James, and John are on the mount and Jesus is transfigured and they hear the voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. When they heard this, they were enlightened, but they fell on their face to the ground and were terrified. And likewise, John in Revelation 1, you know, it's the book of Revelation. The apocalypse is the, the word in, in Greek behind Revelation. Um, that's the same word that Paul's using in Ephesians 1, uh, 17. It's the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Well, John received the spirit of revelation, didn't he? He was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he received a lot of revelation. And the result of seeing Christ in his glory was that he fell at his feet like a dead man. And the same thing happened to Ezekiel and Daniel and others. When you are truly enlightened in the way that Paul's talking about, you are humbled by the experience and you end up thinking more highly of God than you did before and much less of yourself than you did before. You're far more impressed with God uh, than self. So consequently, if our enlightenment has left us in a state of smug self-satisfaction, then we really haven't been enlightened. We may have acquired some knowledge of things theological and uh, maybe memorize some verses and be able to know where things are found in the Bible and have increased our theological vocabulary, might be able to understand doctrinal systems and be able to debate and argue better. But if all that makes us prouder, then the knowledge we obtained wasn't really the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of God. And we just close with uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So we don't need heads just crammed full of biblical and theological information. 
as if that was the goal. We need the biblical and theological knowledge as a means to the end of knowing God. And so uh, just as uh, Mar Brother Mark yesterday was speaking about the knowledge of God, um, so uh, the, the text today speaks for the same thing. And we can have confidence because this is what Paul prayed uh, for us as Christians. And um, it's what uh, gives us a good idea of what we should be praying for ourselves. Thank you.